0: an ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year.
1: How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor?
0: What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that's that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Good day to you and welcome to the Life After God podcast. This is your host, Ryan Bell. This is episode 61. I have had this conversation in the can for a little while and I'm so excited to get it out to you. I'm going to be sharing with you a conversation I had a few weeks ago with Christopher Stroop, who, if you're not following on Twitter, you're missing out. I will put the link to his Twitter in the show notes, of course, but I definitely want you to get to know him. He is at the leading edge of a conversation, primarily online with former evangelicals, and uh, it's quite a vibrant conversation Uh, I'm not going to say too much more about him. I'm going to give you a little bit of his background, and we're going to jump right in. Chris is a scholar in modern Russian history. He has a PhD from Stanford University in modern Russian history and interdisciplinary studies in the humanities. Uh, He's also a freelance writer, public speaker, and a commentator on religion and politics, the U.S. Christian right, Russia, and foreign policy. Chris is currently a visiting instructor in the Honors College at the University of South Florida and also a senior researcher with the Post-Secular Conflicts Project at the University of Innsbruck. So that's a little background about Chris, but the most important thing you need to know about Chris today is that he is responsible for starting the hashtag EmptyThePews. If you use Twitter, you may have seen this hashtag out there as a statement about Leaving toxic congregations and religious institutions that have been damaging to people uh, for decades. More recently, the hashtag uh, that is also associated with this movement is exvangelical. So if you use Twitter, and perhaps this is enough motivation to get you to use Twitter if you don't already, I would advise you to look up these hashtags, empty the pews and exvangelical, and you will see not only Chris and his work, but a host of others that have come on board this movement to tell their stories of leaving the evangelical church in its various forms. Some of these folks are not atheists, they are still Christians uh, or still believers in some kind of supernatural uh, entity beyond uh, the natural world. But they are fellow um, sojourners and refugees from evangelicalism, from Christianity of a certain type that we are all too familiar with here in the United States of America. So uh, check out Chris's work. I'll put plenty of links in the show notes for you to, to find. As always, if you appreciate the work I'm doing, I encourage you to follow me and the various things I'm doing on social media. You can find Life After God also on Twitter, at Our Life After God. Uh, also on Facebook, you can search for us, Life After God, and on Instagram, in fact, at Our Life After God. Our website is lifeaftergod.org. You can subscribe to our newsletter there. You can also subscribe to the podcast at iTunes. Just search for Life After God and you'll find it. We appreciate so much uh, those of you who are regular followers and contributors to the show. If you appreciate this show and you'd like to do a small part to contribute to its production, you can make a monthly recurring donation at patreon.com slash lifeaftergod. Well, that's enough about all of that. Here's my conversation with Chris Stroop. I hope you enjoy it. Chris, welcome to the Life After God podcast. Thanks,
1: Ryan. It's great to be on.
0: Tell us a little bit more about you, your background, your bio, and what you what you do.
1: Uh, sure. So I was born up in northern Indiana, but grew up mostly in a north suburb of Indianapolis. And uh, I went to Heritage Christian School there, which is in Indianapolis proper. Um, it's a pretty fundamentalist school. I mean, we watched young earth creationist videos in AP biology, for example. In AP
0: biology. A- <laughs> I just want to put a pin in that. AP biology.
1: Yeah, I got a five on the exam, even though the, um, the oh, teacher wow. would teach us the evolution chapters. He told us to go read them on our own and regurgitate them for the exam. And he would spend much of his class time rambling with devotionals, often sort of apocalyptic, mystical ones. Every year, he was pretty sure Christ was probably coming back this fall around Yom Kippur. Wow. <laughs> so that was my my Christian school education. Um I started having a crisis of faith around the time I was 16 years old. Hmm. I just I had a lot of questions. Um and it was a pretty heavy crisis for me through uh, my college years and beyond. I tried very hard to stay evangelical like my family because I really didn't want to rock the boat with them, you know, and it I mean losing or just complicating all your childhood relationships is not something that anyone really wants to do right uh so yeah i went to um college at ball state university though which is also my parents alma mater even though many of us were encouraged to go on to christian colleges um they were fine with me going to a secular school they had both been heavily involved with campus crusade for christ now rebranded as crew right there in the 1970s and that's how they met Um, and i have a phd in russian history from stanford which uh, is sort of the result of me going on short-term evangelical mission trips to Russia in 1999 and 2000. Oh, wow. Okay. I was wondering how you got into Russian (laughs) history. (laughs) Where I volunteered, um, you know, raised support and all that stuff that you do for short-term mission trips uh, in an English camp environment, so a summer camp environment. We're out in rural provincial Russia, Um, but we were teaching English by reading English translations of the Bible, and sharing our testimonies and that sort of thing. It was weird. Yeah,
0: it is. Yeah. I, I, rec- I recognize it, though. It's <laughs> oh, not,
1: yes. It's not as weird
0: to me as it ought to be.
1: <laughs> I hear that. I do hear that. What was your uh,
0: denomination, if I could just go back just a moment from your childhood and go, growing up Christian? What was your particular brand, just kind of generic evangelical, or did you have a specific flavor?
1: Uh, so until I was about five when we moved from a little town in Northern Indiana to the Indianapolis area, we were in a missionary church. Then we were in a Baptist church. Then we were in a Wesleyan church. Then we were in an independent Christian church. Hmm. And, um, then we kind of got on board with the non-denominational mega church inspired movements, technically under the umbrella of the missionary church. Uh, but yeah, we, uh, when I was in sixth grade, We moved from Indianapolis to Colorado Springs. This was 1993. Uh, Moved in the middle of sixth grade and focused on the family had just moved there as well. Hmm. Because my dad took a job as the music pastor at a little church plant called Community Church in the Rockies. Met at Rampart High School there in the Springs. Um, And the pastor there, Ron Clarkson, was really inspired by uh, Bill Hybels, Willow Creek. Um, that school had a great auditorium. I learned how to run the light board. You know, sometimes I would do things on stage, but more often behind the scenes. Um, I can sing. I just don't do it in public a whole lot. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I feel you. So you, so you then go on these short-term mission trips uh, to to Russia, which
1: yeah. So you know, long story short, um, Pastor Ron Clarkson got on one of these pastoral power trips as pastors do and, uh, alienated my dad and the youth pastor who then decided to go start another church plant also under the offices of the missionary church back in Indiana. So I graduated from high school back at heritage Christian school, the same school that I went to for first grade through half of sixth grade. And, um, in Colorado Springs. I went to the Christian school there as well for seventh and eighth grade. Half of six I was in a public school. I wanted to stay, but my parents wouldn't let me. And the Christian school that my mom was in teaching, I also demanded that um, the students of the children of teachers go to the school. And it was even more extreme than Heritage Christian School in Indy. Um, for example, we had a, we got a worksheet in seventh grade Bible that basically told us that black people were the cursed descendants of Ham, and the Bible instructor. Seemed embarrassed, but I think it was just, you know, it was in the worksheet, so we were going to go through it. Wow. I mean, it was in the workbook. The sheet was in the book. Right. Anyway. Yeah. 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 Uh. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So then back to Indianapolis for high school, um, Ball State for college, did those short term mission trips um, in the summer between high school and college and after my first year of college, um, which got me interested in Russia. Then I studied abroad in both Germany and England and went to grad school at Stanford and continued my process of um, deconstruction, though I really tried to hold on um, to the basic tenets of evangelical faith for a long time. Um, And it it was weird. I mean, in our environment, you know, it didn't matter, doctrine didn't matter that much, as would probably seem obvious from my family's particular trajectory. We ended up embodying this uh, kind of um, what I sometimes call bad ecumenism, you know, right. As long as uh, we're all Republican and we're all against abortion and gay rights. If you're a Calvinist and I'm an Arminian, we don't have to fight about that.
0: Wow. Yeah. Blood was spilled over those things ages ago. And and now (laughs) it's uh, just a minor footnote. (laughs) So, you, What are you doing now, then? You're in Florida pursuing your doctorate, if I understand correctly. Oh,
1: no, I already got my doctorate uh, from Stanford University in 2012. Got it. Five-year plan in eight years. I'm highly qualified to make stupid Russian history jokes like that. Nice. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I then moved to Moscow, and I taught in a Russian university uh, for three years, 2012 to 2015. I had a front-row seat to major geopolitical shifts. My mm-hmm. salary that was paid in rubles was decimated uh, after the annexation of Crimea and the sanctions and the falling oil prices. Um, And then I got a postdoc at the University of South Florida. So I was a provost postdoctoral scholar in the humanities and social sciences here for two years teaching in the history department in the honors college. And now I'm a visiting instructor in the honors college.
0: Teaching history uh, of Russia or more generally other subjects as well?
1: Um, So I was housed in the history department, and uh, the course that I taught there was an upper-level 19th-century European history survey. Oh, nice. Which included more Russian and East European material than some people would include, but it was also more comprehensive than that. Um, In the honors college, I get to teach interdisciplinary courses that fit into certain rubrics that are the honors gen eds. So they have a geographic perspectives rubric. I teach an interdisciplinary Russian studies course in there. Hmm. Um, And I also currently am teaching in the arts and humanities rubric, uh, a theme course on apocalypse, which is fun.
0: Is that like a like a long history survey of apocalyptic teaching or doctrine or, or how do you approach apocalypse?
1: You could, of course, approach it in a wide variety of ways, and since I know I can't approach it anything like comprehensively, I have some student presentation assignments in there where they can bring in different apocalypses than those that we're able to examine in the class. Hmm. But we use um, literature, current events, history. I mean, a lot of it is looking at the the Cold War, rise of the current U.S. Christian right, and the geopolitics around Jerusalem. Um, the middle section is kind of a comparison of Russian and American apocalypses and a look at hmm. the, uh, the Cold War as a struggle between competing apocalypses, including both sacred and secular ones. You know, there is there's, there's this secular version of U.S. manifest destiny and exceptionalism and all that, as well as the Christian version. And you can certainly argue that the Marxist-Leninist vision for history is an apocalyptic or eschatological vision. Right, It might sprout down to earth, but it absolutely is eschatology.
0: Well, that's fascinating. You know, whenever I speak to someone like you, it always makes me want to go back to school. I I think I would be an excellent uh, professional student.
1: Uh, I'm sure you would. (laughs) Yeah, that would be,
0: I wish I could find someone who would pay me to do that because that's what I would do. Um, I feel like being a journalist or a writer is sort of that, you know, that way you're just doing independent study all the time. But... uh, Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's fascinating. And so, but I know you not from uh, because uh, I share a background with you in in history or Russian studies, but um, because of this hashtag that I believe you started, or you and some others uh, called "Empty the Pews." What is that about?
1: Yeah, I did start that one. It just it came to me in the moment. It wasn't something that I initially planned. But back in August, I was very upset at uh, white evangelical complicity in the atrocities that occurred in Charlottesville, and I was upset that you know there doesn't there's there's not really a way to get through to white evangelicals, conservative evangelicals. They just they don't listen. They deflect. They're incapable of hearing people who criticize them most of the time. So I was thinking to myself, and this was just kind of happening. I was thinking out. Well, I was thinking in tweets as opposed to thinking out loud. right? I was doing a, was doing a thread kind of spontaneously. As
0: we do, yeah.
1: <laughs> and I was thinking, you know, the one thing that does threaten them, though, is declining church attendance numbers, and they're constantly afraid that they're losing the youth. So let's coin a hashtag that will throw that in their faces, hmm. and then they'll have to pay attention. <laughs> and so then I started asking people, to share their stories of why they had left evangelicalism behind, if it was this election or bigotry and intolerance in general, or what it was that had alienated them using the hashtag #EmptyThePews, the pews. And a lot of people did. Um, and some people, you, you still find it used that way, but it's also interesting that unlike some viral hashtags, it didn't just kind of pass away with that moment, but it turned into just a sort of standby protest hashtag. So a lot of times now when people are um, upset about something that the Christian right is doing or that some figure on the Christian right is doing, they tweet, empty the pews at the offending figure. Or they tweet it as part of their tweet protesting, whatever. So it's it's a kind of go-to protest hashtag now that one sees particularly in the ex-evangelical Twitter community, but it's also, I think, broader than that.
0: Has it taken off? Has it made news?
1: It was covered in Sojourner's, I got to talk about it with Reverend Doctor Belton Gaddy on State of Belief Radio. Nice. Um, let's see. I believe it was also mentioned in Vox and Raw Story, um, and now so, yeah. on
0: the Life After God podcast. Imagine that. And on Life
1: After God, and, um, <laughs> <laughs> and a few other podcasts. So yeah, yeah. It's um, it's it's gotten around. Um, and has it produced
0: that kind of you know? In organizing, we talk about you know, in, in amplifying the tension um, you know that part of organizing is putting pressure and it has this hashtag applied that kind of pressure that you originally envisioned upon the Evangelical Church
1: I mean I apart from sojourners covering it which was a fairly brave thing of them to do and I appreciate it but of course they are they are sojourners they are you know the the, the good evangelicals right um, I haven't seen a lot of responses to it, some, some in blogs, uh, particularly earlier on, um, in August and September, I saw some clergy, um, including evangelicals and mainline kind of grappling with the hashtag, Hmm. um, dealt with a number of defensive progressive Christians. Um,
0: yeah, (laughs) as you do, it's
1: it's hard for me to, um, to measure exactly how much resonance, it had out there, but sometimes people have messaged me to say, "You know, I was I was in this um, church organization meeting, and we were talking about your hashtag." So it's it's had some, you know. I just I can't measure it at this point.
0: Yeah, it's tough, you know. I mean, for years I was um, a Seventh-day Adventist minister, and then I wasn't, you know, and it, it sort of went like that. And I was told and felt personally that. I could do more good by trying to change things from within than leaving in a protest fashion emptying the pews so to say. And mm-hmm. and then I and then for me and I think for everyone that ends up leaving you come to a point where it's just too much. And I think there's this line between I'm a faithful critic from the inside trying to reform things and then this is a bridge too far. I can't be associated with this anymore because by just simply being there, I'm endorsing or being um so tacitly supportive of something that's atrocious. And sure. I I wonder where you know, how that works for people. You must get so much pushback that, hey, we're trying to make a difference from inside. What if we leave, then that doesn't help anybody, blah, blah, blah. Do you get do you get that?
1: I have had a lot of pushback um of that type on Twitter. Um, mostly on Twitter, and I guess uh, I also was present in the reactions to um the episode that where I was a guest on bad Christian podcast um there was some a fair amount of offense taken at me saying that essentially I find evangelicalism irredeemable right um but with respect to the MGPU's the pews hashtag I didn't Frame it, and I, and I was able to write about it and frame it in two spaces on my own blog, not Your Mission field at christroop.com, and also on Religion Dispatches. And then, of course, in interviews, like with Catherine Woody was for Sojourners, for example, and Re- Reverend Dr. Wilton Gaddy, I got to explain what I meant by it. And I was always, I always insisted that I'm not saying everyone should leave every church. Though people still persist in misunderstanding this, I got a strange private message on Twitter the other day from a woman inviting me to a retreat at a monastery. She wanted to pay my way, and she was very upset, apparently, that I want to destroy the church instead of changing it from within, Um, which is a distortion. I don't want to be a part of any church, but with the hashtag, I always said, you know, this is not anti-religious. This is a call for people to abandon clearly toxic churches and denominations, and then to either go to a healthier church uh, or to no church at all, depending on their own conscience. So I'm not prescribing a one-size-fits-all solution. Right. Yeah, that makes uh, sense. As someone who's trying to help build an ex-evangelical community, it's important to me to try to uh, build bridges between people who land in some healthier form of religion and people who land outside religion altogether. And there's definitely some tensions between those two communities. But I think there's also value in, in building a community around uh, what Blake Chastain likes to call our shared sociocultural heritage in evangelicalism. Mm. There's a lot of things that we can talk about if sometimes we might just agree to accommodate one another a little bit and put aside perhaps our strongly held convictions that God exists or that belief in God is a terrible thing.
0: Yeah, it's, it is it is an interesting conundrum, you know, and, and it seems that these, as you put it, strongly held beliefs are so strong. I mean, for instance, I thought that, like, after the revelations in Boston from the archdiocese there, that the Catholic Church was, you know, would suffer an enormous blow. And, of course, they did spend a fortune defending themselves, and so it cost them in that way. And then when the movie Spotlight came out, I thought, wow, this is devastating. Like, it's just devastating. Why would anybody remain Catholic Um. When there's been such not bad apples, but systemic system, mm-hmm. you know, system wide abuse um, and denial and cover up, I just thought this has got to be the end of it. And it's just, of course, I knew it wouldn't be. It's mm-hmm. just so persistent in, um, and I wonder what what why do you think that is? Why is religion, even in the face of such horrible abuses, so tenacious? In our culture
1: that's a good question um, I, I mean I think that a lot of it of course has to do with childhood socialization and even beyond childhood you know your community that you that you find yourself in it's it's really hard to go against the grain of that community and so if everyone's insisting that we all need to believe these things uh, something about you has to just be somehow unable to deal with that uh for for some reason i mean i think that a lot of us uh some people do leave religion for purely intellectual reasons but um our reasoning about anything that is matters to us deeply on an emotional level is of course motivated right you know cognitive science has done a lot in recent years to to show that um for a lot of people, it has to do with something that you discover about yourself that you know maybe you're queer or you or maybe you just have really good gay friends or you know something starts to make you think, huh? I have to, I'm not so sure about this. Um, for most people that are just kind of ensconced in that community, and particularly because fundamentalist communities are designed to keep you in the fold, uh, they have a lot of built-in mechanisms, both internalized and external mechanisms that. Prevent people from from leaving or make it very very difficult to leave. Uh, you you have to get to that boiling point, and um, I think it has a lot to do with people's individual personalities. And, and most people won't. But there's also a difference. I mean, between that kind of Protestantism, the more fundamentalist kind, and most of Evangelicalism is fundamentalism by an academic definition of the word. Sure. Even if they don't call themselves that. Um, in Catholicism, there are so many people who are content to be Catholic and sometimes go to Mass and not do a damn thing the magisterium says on matters of sex and sexuality. You know?
0: Right, right, right.
1: You really can't get away with that in a an evangelical Protestant community. Yeah,
0: it's much more personal. It's much more like, closely held and expected that you would act on your faith in, a, in an evangelical context.
1: So, yeah, I mean, I kind of I kind of don't understand that either, that sense of, oh, this is fine. You know, we have our feminist theologians and our queer theologians and the magisterium condemns all of that, but that's fine. I'll just stick around. I mean, it doesn't make sense to me, but I wasn't raised and socialized in a, in a community in which that would make sense.
0: I mean, I do think it has something to do, too, and I'm always trying to, like, figure this out, but I think it has something to do with the fact that, at least in the United States— the church of all, all types has had a kind of a lock on sort of supportive, highly networked community. Uh, yes. Uh, that crosses economic and sometimes uh, other social barriers. And so if you leave the church, I mean, what are you going to join a bowling league or <laughs> like, I mean, what are you going to do? A knitting club? Like, you know, there are options. There are places for people to go, but, not that many, like not a, a tremendous – you know, join the Lions Club or the Rotary or something, but it's not the same. There's something about the urgency or the sort of the metaphysical aspect of of Christianity especially that is very um, uh, binding. And, and though humans – you know, so many times you hear people say, though humans are uh, faulty and, and do horrible things. You know, God is still God and people kind of hang in there. And, um, I don't think it occurs to them to leave until the pain gets so great that they're willing to ostracize their support network, uh, to, to make a change.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there are kind of two issues there. I mean, how Christianity feels binding when you're socialized in, in a Christian community. Uh, but there's also the issue of why in, in America, Religious communities are the easiest kinds of communities to get plugged into, even if you're just, you know, let's say you're an immigrant. You right. know, immigrants come, come here from Israel, from Greece, and they get more religious because somehow now, you know, synagogue or the Orthodox Church is where you find your national community.
0: Your people, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, there really aren't a lot of other options in America, so... You know that I'm sure that has a lot to do with adult conversions uh, as well, uh, because the church provides you with a kind of ready-made social network, support if you're going through hard times, um, possible job opportunities, business connections. And in this country we just have such a generally benign view of religion, and uh, we stigmatize atheism.
0: Yeah, and I think that, you know, our economics, um, you know, this kind of late-stage capitalism that's been such a big part of, you know, I'm in my mid-40s, you know, my entire life um, is alienating as well. So at the same time, you have, you know, basically basic social structures that fragment human community, and, you know, I know when I was a pastor, I really beat that drum hard, you know, that this is a way for us to sort of transcend the triviality of, you know, consumer capitalist culture and form something meaningful that is, you know, life-changing and, and world-changing and that we can make a mm-hmm. difference. And I just, you know, I miss, the thing I miss the most about being in a sort of quasi-evangelical community is the way that I felt empowered to take on the world and the powers and, and really, mm-hmm. you know, organize people towards that, you know, you might say apocalyptic vision of a better world.
1: Yeah. I mean, um, there are a lot of, a a lot of things in evangelicalism that, uh, work to cultivate that sort of sense of, uh, self-transcendence or spiritual connection with God. And that's a powerful thing as well. I mean, I think there are also a lot of things that alienate introverts. I've had discussions about this with Mm. a lot of experts. A lot of ex-evangelicals, you know, that popcorn prayer or anytime you're expected to participate in group prayer or church greeting times are horrifyingly anxiety-inducing times for introverts. I always hated those things. Right. You know, so those were some things that alienated me from uh, from evangelicalism. But at the same time, I mean, I'm I'm an introvert, but I still I want to have social support structures and people I care about in my life, right? So I want I want some kind of community.
0: And what do you do for that now? What is your sort of source of community?
1: At the moment, it, my community situation is definitely not ideal, and it's partly my fault, but it's also, I think, partly the um, most partly also depression, and it's partly the instability of my situation. I'm just. Um, In terms of finances and career, I'm just in a precarious place Hmm. because I've been going from year to year with a job with no future job security. The postdoctoral fellowship that I held for the last two academic years before this one um, could not be renewed after a second year. There are basically no tenure-track academic jobs in my field. uh, And I didn't know I would be offered a chance to get a visiting instructorship here. Just another faculty member was poached, and so I'm filling in. But the um, they're replacing um that position with someone whose specializations are very different from mine.
0: Yeah, that is touchy.
1: So I just kind of I end up in in places for 2 years, 3 years, but I never actually know mm. at the beginning that I'll be there that long. So I have a kind of disincentive to get really involved in the local community. Um And yeah, being an introvert, I just, I don't tend to put that much effort into it, but I'm getting sick of that. And I want to, I want to be more connected.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I know in in the secular community that I'm a part of, there are, you know, options increasing, increasingly there are options, um, very church like options like Sunday assembly and Mm -hmm. Oasis, which is a sort of another um, church-like secular community, um, and there are meetups, various different types of discussion salons, and I don't know. There's not a great answer to this yet. Uh,
1: mm-hmm. And I have a few contacts around, and you go out sometimes, and um, but a lot of my community is online right now. Sure, that's where I connect more, uh, more with with people. Um there are definitely some good people here that I'd like to get to know better. I just find it difficult with um not knowing where I'm going in the future, you know, not having any kind of stability or security. It's getting old. (laughs) Yeah,
0: that I can imagine, man. That's that's tough. And I feel, you know, it's funny because I had some security and then when I sort of uprooted myself from my faith tradition and my career it was like a midlife insecurity. Suddenly I was like, you know, a a millennial in in the gig economy. I was like, wow, this is super rocky out here. I don't, I don't, I don't like it at all. I much prefer a steady two week paycheck. Um, Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I've adapted and people have really supported and helped. And, you know, that community has been that wider sort of social network, I suppose, online and so forth has been, has been a lifesaver for me. And, I don't really have a great you know community either, partly by my own choice. Um, having been a pastor for so many years, I kind of I don't know, I still am on the tail end of recovering from a little bit of community burnout, you know, having mm-hmm. to maintain my relationships with like 50 to 100 people all the times. that can also be um, exhausting.
1: Yeah, I hear that. Um, and one thing that I do really enjoy is being a part of a university campus. And I definitely enjoy my teaching that I do right now. Uh, I enjoy conversations with my colleagues. Um, but I also just always kind of have this voice in the back of my head reminding me that I'm in a very weird and impermanent status, right. sort of complicating the whole things. But, but um, I'm having fun with the kind of teaching that I'm doing, got really great students, um, they're enthusiastic, hardworking. And I really do appreciate kind of just getting to mold young minds like that, you know?
0: Yeah. Oh man. I know exactly what you mean. I've only done, (laughs) I did a little undergrad teaching, um, at Azusa Pacific when I was still a pastor and, um, just an adjunct in a basic, uh, entry level cultural studies. And it's just, yeah, there's nothing like it. I mean, college age students, and now I work with college students mostly remotely uh, from the Secular Student Alliance. And I love it. Uh, They're just the best sponge minds, you know, learning and so curious and courageous. And I just, I love college students.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: So where are you at on on the whole religion and God? I know those are two drastically different questions, but where do you sort of stand on those things now?
1: yeah I mean, I describe myself as an agnostic with um maybe certain Kantian or kantian ish tendencies mm. i'm very I'm very wary of dogma um I also admit that perhaps we are or might be more than the sum of our parts that the hard problem of consciousness is indeed a hard problem right uh so I don't. I don't believe in a micromanaging God. I don't see any reason to believe in a micromanaging God. It seems to create a lot more problems than it solves mm-hmm. um, for me personally. And I would say, you know, bo- both sort of moral and ethical problems as well as intellectual problems. I mean, the God of the Bible, I consider him to be monstrous. Right. Um, and yet, I sometimes hold back from saying things like that, depending on the context, just because I do want to build bridges with people who are still in progressive Christianity,
0: you know? Right. I Uh-oh. totally get that.
1: And, and sometimes I, I get annoyed enough with smug atheists to push back against them. And then I get yelled at by angry atheists for a few days, but <laughs> <laughs> that's always fun though. <laughs> yeah. I wrote, um, for my, my blog, uh, a few days ago, a piece that I gave the provocative title of, um, why I'm not an atheist. Of course, a sort of inverse allusion to Bertrand Russell to throw in the face of smug atheists. Right. And of course, a lot of them predictably argued, Oh, you are an atheist. You just won't say that you are, which I hate because if there's one thing that I want to preach, it's moral autonomy, right? Let people fucking define themselves. Right. Um, which and and i just see that uh attempt to to sort of push all agnostics into the atheism category as the exact same kind of numbers grubbing that churches do when they count people as members who haven't showed up in decades.
0: Yeah, I, you know it's funny because i was just having this conversation with someone the other day and i'm i i too am very much a fan of letting people decide for themselves at their own pace, you know, how to define themselves and um and that curious people will find their way to answers for themselves that that work. Um to me it's more important that the answers that someone comes to are honestly acquired and work for them personally than that they're sort of correspond to some absolute truth somewhere. So Mm-hmm. I would rather a person hold on to some semblance of a a belief in the supernatural if that keeps them healthy and they come by it honestly in other words they're not lying to themselves about it they're they genu- mm-hmm. genuinely mm-hmm. think that the mystery in the universe is indicative of something beyond and and and, mm-hmm. and, and it works for them you know I, that's better to me i mean i've seen people you know in my a brief time, really almost collapse as people when they genuinely come to the belief that there is no God and they are rudderless, you know, just really have the carpet ripped out from under them. And mm-hmm. that's a scary place to be, uh, you know, because religion yeah. is so rooted into the core of our identities and our our outlooks on life, our politics, our behavior. It's just... It's like a a root that tangles around everything in our lives, which I think is uh, one of the sort of certainly the negative qualities of religion, which makes Mm -hmm, it very mm -hmm. difficult
1: to root out. And and when it's all
0: ripped out suddenly, it can be very dangerous for people.
1: Sure. And so I also try to affirm people who end up in in different places. uh, I mean, as long as they end up in a kind of benign belief, I don't really see the point of challenging that because it's not I don't live my life looking for people to score points against you know I would I would rather try to help um be supportive of people and um so yeah I just I I occasionally get annoyed enough with the kind of um point scoring and and blind spots of too much of the atheist community that I end up yelling at them on Twitter and I finally wrote an article about it. So I just have a link to post to the next time it happens. I spend much more time yelling at Christians. (laughs) Yeah.
0: To be fair, right. To be fair, you spend more time yelling at Christians, but I, but I do think that there is this something worth noticing about our tribal tendencies, um, Mm -hmm. the ways in which we will defend our heroes against our better judgment uh, because mm-hmm. they're you know, after all, they are on our side, and um we have to stick together and um, that type of mentality as as well as just wanting to be right, you know, I feel like I remember being so harshly critical as a christian of of Christians who were so committed to being right they they were more mm-hmm. committed to being right than being good, and mm-hmm. um even whether they're right or not is sort of immaterial but that was their goal they were righter than you and mm-hmm. and and now i encounter people in the skeptic community ironically enough who are you know they're righter than you they they would sooner correct your grammar than engage, engage with <laughs> your uh, idea and or or accuse you of some you know little known fallacy by a latin name than really try to understand where you're coming from it's like there's not a lot of good faith argumentation going on in some of those conversations.
1: Yeah, they really are mirror images as well. And I think that we get into a dangerous place if we think that because I believe X, Y, and Z, or I don't believe X, Y, and Z, and because I'm reasonabler than thou, uh, I am not susceptible to uh, tribalism. Right. And and, And you see that on, oddly enough, you know, both in uh, Christian communities and skeptic communities.
0: Yeah, I, I tweeted not too long ago, and of course, I'm not Twitter famous the way you are, so it didn't get, <laughs> it didn't get any traction at all. But, but uh, I said something to the effect that um, uh, rational is something I would prefer other people ascribe to me than I rather than putting it in my bio that I'm rational. I mean, that's sort of like saying I'm super humble. You know, like I'm, I'm, I'm going to put in my Twitter bio that I'm humble. Like that's probably proving the opposite, you know, that Mm -hmm. if you need to go around trumpeting that you're rational and skeptical, I, now I'm skeptical, you know, like I, (laughs) of of those claims, you know, I, it's almost better to just live your life, do your thing and let other people say, you know, that guy's a pretty level headed thinker. Like he's pretty rational about things. I
1: Mm -hmm. leave that judgment to others. Yeah, I like that. I think I think that's that's a good approach.
0: What would you like the future to look like in terms of not that you get to decide, uh, but uh, <laughs> what would you like the future to look like in terms of um, faith and interfaith and non-faith type relationships, like people's choices about religion and the way that we could all, you know, sort of collaborate together if mm-hmm. possible?
1: I mean, how far out in the future are we projecting? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever
0: you like, you know, not tomorrow. <laughs>
1: Hmm. I mean, I think that um, we're we're facing a seriously grave threat in the United States right now of theocratic authoritarianism. Um, I would certainly like to see to see that end, um, but since religion does matter so much to people and it's very difficult to change it, also suddenly overnight. I mean, I certainly believe that we should support. Pluralism and different groups of people coming together to work for the common good and for particular interests across confessional and non-confessional lines. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I guess um, I'd like to see a society, a society where um, we have a robust separation of church and state, which, haha, ha good luck in America. Right. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I thought we were headed in the right direction until a few years ago. Um, but also... One where we can we can all sort of get along in the public sphere. Um, I don't know. That's very that's very vague. Maybe not very helpful.
0: Well, no. I mean, I I think it is helpful, and I think it's vague by 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 necessity. I mean, I some people will say, you know, like you know, a la John Lennon, imagine no religion, and I just. I can't imagine no religion. I just think we're religious creatures by nature. People are religious they're gonna they hear a rustle in the in the bushes and they they think you know wild animal, you know what I mean so it's it's just you know people hear see something or experience something and they think God or they think you know Allah or they think you know something else so i mm-hmm. I think that we are incurably religious as a species. Uh, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe on the scale of thousands of years, we might outgrow religion. But, you know, as we've been saying, even people that abandon religion adopt other sort of remnants of religious behavior. Um, and it, just without the supernatural components, perhaps. So mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. but I so I do think it's, I think what you're saying is, is reasonable. I, I sort of hope for a more um, how would I say? I guess progressive sort of movement, you know, towards uh, a kind of an enlightenment Islam, or or some kind of uh, you know where where religions are are adapting their faith as 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 religions do to you know modern knowledge and modern science mm-hmm. in ways that enable us to to think about a pluralistic public, you know, where we all have access to the same benefits
1: yeah i mean i think that's certainly something that it can be worth encouraging i also you know i think i think deep down if i'm being really honest i do feel like religion creates problems that simply don't need to exist without it right but again it's not it's not going to go away tomorrow so i think if we could could work on cultivating uh respect for different people and um respect for others moral autonomy so that we all just accept that we don't have to believe the same things uh in order to work toward the common good in a democratic society that's that's a good thing to aim for uh some people will say to that well then you're just telling people they shouldn't really believe their religion because if they really believe it they should be exclusivist and whatever Hmm. um but you know religion isn't isn't always like that even historically It's taken a wide variety of different forms, and sometimes toleration and coexistence have happened. Um, Even when people had very strong, very divergent beliefs, I mean, if you look at 10th, 11th century Cordoba and the library that they had there, uh, when it was under Muslim rule, you had Islamic, Jewish, and Christian scholars all working side by side and living in the same community, and it was fine. And then, you know, after the Reconquista, Spanish Christians kick all the Muslims and Jews out. Um, but there are different ways that coexistence has, has happened or that degrees of toleration, even if not formulated exactly in the language of modern Western liberalism have have happened. I think modern Western liberalism and Kantianism are about the best languages that we have for expressing those values now, or at least the most dominant ones. And so maybe they're, they're valuable in that sense. Um, but it's something that can that can be done. We can we can reduce polarization.
0: Right. And I think the next generation, you know, those that are in college now, uh recently graduated up through, you know, high school students that we have in this country right now are, you know, h- historic lows when it comes to religious affiliation. 1 in 3 are not religiously affiliated anymore and are creating alternative um, forms of social life outside of traditional religious structures and so maybe there's the hope you know that that we can create um, bonds of common humanity that don't include the superstitions of religion that as you say so often create bigger problems than they solve. I, I often root the problems of religion in especially Abrahamic faiths in static texts you know so we have these texts mm-hmm. that that never change you know, by definition, they're on paper, they're texts, you know, and so and they have we have doctrines about them, how they don't ever change. And so then we need, you know, massive volumes of theology to explain how even though it hasn't changed, everything's really different, you know, so mm-hmm. suddenly we, you know, are we can accept you know, homosexual Christians because all this time we've been interpreting the Bible wrong. If only we had understood it right, we would know that God loves people equally, even though the Bible clearly seems to say something quite different. You know, so it's like this, you know, (laughs) backbending theology to accommodate Mm -hmm. these archaic beliefs. Whereas if you just got, you changed your model of inspiration and just said, look, these are, you know, pages, you know, words written by people who were doing their best to understand a world that they didn't understand The same as Mm -hmm. we today Mm -hmm. do our best to understand a world that we only understand marginally better than we did back then. And we're all still at that project of trying Mm -hmm. to understand the world. And, um, you know, so anyway, I just think that young adults today, and maybe I'm placing too much hope and I'm naive, but I see a lot of hope in in, um, younger Americans to maybe free us from some of the slavery to uh, superstition and old old ideas
1: they are in general also my greatest source of hope right now i mean we already talked about the activism that they're engaging in with respect to school shootings right uh in in a a way that's really new with respect to american youth culture of the last couple of generations anyway um so that's exciting and i also am really cheered by the news that they're getting less and less religious i do think that's going to be better than the alternative Given the malignancy of American Of so so much of American Christianity Right There's there's so much of American Christianity That really just needs to die out In its current form Like the Republican Party I mean it would be much better If white evangelicalism Would basically just fade off Into the sunset now There's nothing good left in it The 15 to 20% Of the, of the non-Trump voters I don't understand what they're doing there I never have
0: Right Trying to change it from within probably <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, you know, good luck, I guess. Yeah, um,
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, the whole Roy Moore phenomenon in Alabama, you know, we we were, you know, th- obviously thrilled that he didn't win, but just barely, you know, and, and it was these white evangelicals who nearly elected that guy.
1: Oh, yeah, voted for him, and what was the final percentage? It was even higher. Like than
0: the 48%? uh oh, you mean his total vote percentage?
1: Oh, I mean f- total uh, per- percentage of white evangelicals it was well over 80.
0: Yeah, something along those lines.
1: Mhm.
0: It's just obscene and uh, you know I just I just can't I can't get my head around it. I mean, you know yesterday we we we're, we're recording this on February 22nd. Ye- yesterday uh Billy Graham passed away,
1: mm-hmm. which
0: does seem again in in many ways like a passing of a a significant milestone. And and yet, and this is where my faith in the younger generation just falters just a little bit. His son is three times as vile as he ever was. So I,
1: <laughs> I just I, so he's not exactly the Franklin's not exactly the younger generation at this point. I well, mean, really younger than his dad, but <laughs> yeah, you're
0: right. He's certainly not. He's older than I am. Um. So, but right. I mean, I just mean that sometimes things go the other way. The next generation can become become can become worse. I suppose, but. At least, sure. at least with this generation, I'm definitely seeing a trend towards, you know, humanistic values that are independent of religious tradition.
1: There's also Billy Graham's, uh, Billy Graham's grandson, Baz Chivadjian, who's done so much work to expose uh, abuse in evangelical contexts, mm. and that is um, admirable. I still think he doesn't quite see how the abuse is systemic, and there is absolutely no way to root it out while you hold to evangelical theology. But he's still an an admirable guy. Um, but, you know, inerrancy doctrine is inherently authoritarian.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, when it's it, when the it worst. Comes,
1: when it comes to text-based religions, as you're talking about, too, um, everybody cherry-picks, right? So the progressives cherry-pick, the the uh, fundamentalists cherry-pick, because there are tensions in the text. Right. And, I mean, I guess that does create some creative spaces for decent theologies, but... Um, it also just kind of says to me, there there is no pure essence of this, so what's the point? Why bother?
0: Yeah. <laughs> like, you would not, you know, go to the hospital and be okay if the doctor was referring to a medical textbook from, you know, the the 18th century, like... It's ter- it's terrifying. Like you cannot, you <laughs> can't. You might study it as a historical curiosity if you're a historian of medicine, but you wouldn't, as a practitioner of medicine, use sure. that information. It's just, and in reality, we don't do it. You know, I this is what I say to Christians well, all the time when they you say, still "Have
1: faith healing communities with graveyards full of dead children." That's
0: true. That is so true. And people are sacrificing their their families and their children on the altar of of these, uh, these gods. Um, but people are by and large, they don't stone their disobedient children, even though that's in the Bible. And when you ask them why they don't, they give you some rationalization. And, Mm. and I, you know, to that, I say, you know, congratulations. You're thinking about it the same way (laughs) I think about it and come up with what I think is the ethical thing to do. So I don't know. I, I think it's eroding. It's not eroding fast enough for my taste, but uh, there are, you know, good people in there trying to do their best and everybody has to move at their own pace, I guess. And,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and, uh, but I appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate you putting your neck out there. I know it's lonely and, <laughs> and depressing, um, but I appreciate what you're doing on social media and, in, you know, in your professional life. And I wish you all the luck in the world.
1: Thanks, Ryan. I really appreciate what you're doing as well. Um, these, these conversations that you host on this podcast are really great. Well, thanks so and much. And the honesty that you bring to the discussion, you know, mm. with your particular path of having left ministry as well. It's just, it's, it's, um, it, it gives you a kind of unique voice.
0: Thank you. Well, that's what I hope for. And I really want, um, I, you know, I'm more interested in, in, an honest conversation than winning some kind of argument um so (laughs) that's why i have people on the show that are christians or that are in places like where you are where you're sort of defy definition a little bit agnostic Mm -hmm. um as well as you know people who are still who who are very you know much out the other side and I, I, mm. you know, I guess I don't have that many angry atheists on the show, but but <laughs> I I, mean,
1: i'm 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 not religious you know right right, right just i just don't I just feel like declaring myself an atheist is a little bit too uh categorical for me, mm. and it also would be letting the angry atheists win it, uh, okay, so maybe there is a part of me that wants to have a little bit of point scoring once in a while <laughs> like, <laughs> I feel you because, because they're so annoying that I'm not going to let them count me as as one of them just to up their numbers and feel better about themselves
0: yeah it's kind of a colonizing thing you know
1: like yeah so i stick with agnostic and i exist and insist that agnostic is not always the same as atheism you know according though some of them will insist the opposite and right count here
0: one more power to you
1: <laughs> thanks
0: Well, there you have it. It was so much fun talking to Chris, and the party continues online. So check out Chris's work. Check out the show notes. Um, They are to be found on Spreaker and on our website. Everything about Life After God is at our website, lifeaftergod.org. You can follow us on social media. All the links are there. And if you'd like to make a contribution to help us out with the production of this show, you can do that at patreon.com slash lifeaftergod. Thanks so much for tuning in this week. There will be more coming up soon. I have several other shows already recorded that I'm editing and getting ready to release. So stay tuned to all of our channels and you will not miss an episode. Thank you again for spending a part of your day with me. My name is Ryan Bell and this has been the Life After God podcast.